0: Good morning again. Today we are concluding the sermon series that we started uh, four weeks ago called Faithful. We've been looking at how can we be found faithful when Christ returns or the end of our life, whichever comes first. How can we be found faithful in the things that God has entrusted to us? So during the course of the series, we looked at how can we be found faithful in the use of our time. We all have 24, the same 24 hours in each day. How can we use our time faithfully for God? How can we use the talents that God has given us, the opportunities? How can we invest them for God's glory rather than just drift through life? How can we use our our testimony? Each one of us who is a follower of Christ has a story uh, of faith in Christ. How can we use that story faithfully to point others to the grace that we found in Jesus? And finally today, we're coming to the topic of of our money and possessions. How can we use those things, those resources faithfully, faithfully? For God's glory. Now, I, I know that uh, this is always the sermon that people tend to dread, and I have to let you know a secret. Pastors don't really like talking about money a whole lot either. It's, it's an uncomfortable subject for a lot of us, but it's important to talk about because I believe that how we use our, our resources and our money has a lot to do with our spiritual health and growth and discipleship in Jesus Christ. I mean, when you think about it, Jesus talked about money a lot. Um, 16 of the 38 parables in the Gospels are concerned with how to handle money and possessions. In the Gospels, an amazing one out of ten verses have to do with the subject of money and possessions. The Bible offers 500 verses on the topic of a prayer, just under 500 on the topic of faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Why would Jesus, why would the Scriptures emphasize this so much? Well, this morning we're going to be looking at briefly the parable that Hannah just read out of Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. In a little bit of context, in this passage, Jesus is talking to a, a big crowd of people. He's, in a, he's, he's preaching, and he's covering a lot of topics. He's talking about heaven and about hell. He's talking about life and death. He's talking about loving God and respecting God. And He's moving through this message about halfway through, and, and a guy elbows his way through the crowd and interrupts Jesus in the middle of a sermon. I think, wow, this must be something really, really important. But the guy, what he, what he comes up and asks Jesus about, he says, teacher, divide the inheritance between my brother and me. Now, now, we don't know what the guy's situation is completely, but it's evident that his father has died. And now he and his brother are, are squabbling over the estate that his father has left. You know, there's probably no greater bitterness than, than money squabbles between family uh, when it's time for a will to be read. And, and, and he's evidently taken the bull by the horns. He, he thinks Jesus is this great teacher, so he wants Jesus to, to divide the inheritance between him and his brother, so he makes sure that he gets what's fair. It's ironic, he's staying in the presence of, of, of the Son of God, and his mind is fixed on, on gold. Why did Jesus spend so much time talking about you know, money or earthly possessions? This man is a perfect example. Because obsession with money keeps us from hearing what Jesus has to say. You see, money has a way of binding us to what is physical and temporal and blinding us to what is spiritual and eternal. It's kind of like a, a fly in flypaper. A fly line lands on the flypaper and says, My flypaper... When the fly paper says, my fly, the fly is dead. It's one thing to have money and possessions, but it's another thing for that money and possessions to have you. Obsession with money keeps us from hearing what Jesus has to say. And what does Jesus say about the topic? He says, give to the poor. He says, use your money to build God's kingdom. Invest in eternity. Give generously and sacrificially. You've probably heard the phrase, money is the root of all evil. Well, that's not exactly what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money and possessions are, are simply neutral. They're tools. They're, they're material things. They're not evil in and of themselves. I mean, some of God's great women and men in the Bible were people of means. Abraham, a very wealthy man in the Bible. Job, a very wealthy man. David and Solomon, very wealthy kings. Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man, provides a tomb for Jesus to be buried after his crucifixion. In the early church, there's many examples of wealthy people opening their homes to the bands of Christians so they had a place to worship and, and funding missionary trips. So wealth in and of itself is not evil, but, but the Bible is very clear that money needs to be handled carefully because an obsession with it, a love for it, a pursuit of it above all else puts us in a very dangerous position spiritually. So given the fact that we live in the, the richest culture, the richest nation in the history of the planet, how do we know if we're in a good place with God in regard to our finances, if we're being faithful to what God has entrusted to us? Well, I would suggest a, a good barometer for us, a good kind of test for us, is to maybe pull out our budget or our checkbook. It's a good gauge to figure out what's most important to us, what, what is highest on the priority list. The way we spend our money, just like the way we spend our time, says a lot about who we are and what's, what we're about. It's a window into our worldview. You know, treasures, earthly treasures, Jesus says, have no permanence. Whatever we spend our energy and time on that does not live past the grave is a waste of time and money. And many of us are in debt up to our eyeballs, paying for things we no longer even have and things that long ago wore out or that we're tired of now. But Jesus says we are to be different. Verse 33, he says, Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We, we might say that money doesn't have a hold on us, but we can always tell by our actions and our choices whether it does or not. It's sort of like the um, the church secretary in this story. A man called at the church and asked if he could speak to the head hog at the trough. The secretary said, "Who?" The man said, "I want to talk to the head hog at the trough." Sure that she had heard correctly, she says, uh, Sir, if you mean our pastor, you will have to treat him with more respect. Ask for the reverend or, or the pastor, but certainly you cannot refer to him as the head hog at the trough. The man said, Well, I see. I, I have $10 million I was thinking of donating to the building fund. The secretary said, Hold the line. I think the big pig just walked in the door. After Jesus tells us the parable of the foolish farmer, just a few verses later in verse 34, he says, where your treasure is, there is your heart. In other words, Christ wants to be the treasure of our heart. He wants to be first in our heart, at the center of our heart. Because Jesus knows that when he is first, it brings us freedom from the obsession and the stranglehold. And the pursuit of material possessions can begin to have on us. I mean, we're created in, in our very natural desires to establish security, to want security for the future. But it can begin to become an obsession, and rather than giving the future to God and trusting Him to provide, we begin to take that job on for ourselves. Now, a little caveat is needed here. We are certainly called to work hard, to do our best so as to provide for our families, our friends, and so that we can be a blessing to the people around us. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But we also must remember that all that we have, as far as material possessions and money go, come ultimately from God, and that we are our stewards and, and managers, not owners of those resources. And so we're to hold loosely to what God has entrusted to us, having our hands open, allowing him to direct us in our use of his resources. As Elton Trueblood put it, our priorities lie. When we look at our, our, it says, our faith becomes practical when it is expressed in two books, the date book and the checkbook. It shows where our priorities lie. It shows where growth and correction is needed. So how do we begin to have a more positive biblical view of our possessions and, and and keep God first in our lives? Here are some practical steps. First, we are to honor God first. Proverbs three nine says, "Honor the Lord with your wealth, for the first fruits of all your crops." So what that means is that before we give to ourselves, before we give to the government, before we give to the bank. Before we give to anything or anyone else, we are to honor the Lord first. And when we do so, we acknowledge that it's his in the first place and we are just simply returning something of what is on loan from him. Uh, Then the question might come up when when we talk about this topic in the church is, well, how much? What's, What's God expect? What's God require? Well, in the Old Testament, the minimum that God's people were to give was 10%. And some people say, well, that was when we were under the law in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, not under grace. And that Jesus came to fulfill the law, and therefore we're not required to do that anymore. On the other hand, some would say it's still in effect. I'm not going to get into that right now, but I want to ask a question. What motivates your giving? Is it obligation or is it gratitude? If it's obligation, we're going to look for loopholes, right? Right? What's the bare minimum that I can do to get by? If it's gratitude, we'll want to do our best. We'll want to give our best. And so if we're to follow the example of Jesus Christ, then our giving should cost us something. It must be more than simply a donation. It it must be a sacrifice. In view of the cross, the, the question we should ask ourselves is, how much can I give? Not how much can I get by with? C.S. Lewis spoke to this when he wrote, the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. I mean, when Jesus laid down his life for us, when he wipes the slate clean of all our sins, when he invites us into his family, when he gives us the assurance of heaven and eternity, when he gives us everything and then asks us to honor him and to show gratitude through some very practical behaviors and commitments, Don't you think our heartfelt response should be, yes, Lord, I'll I'll do my best. I'll give my best for you. But you see, God doesn't need our money. Why does he ask us to do this? Because giving sacrificially is not fundamentally about the money. It's about the condition of our heart before God. And so when we look at the backdrop of the cross, when we hold up the material things of this world, against what Jesus has done for us, we realize God is to be honored no matter how much it may cost or inconvenience us. Secondly, we have to remember that possessions over-promise and under-deliver. Proverbs 11:28 says, "...whoever trusts in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf." You know, we are created for meaning and purpose. And every person who lives looks for meaning and purpose. We, we look for meaning and purpose in a variety of ways. Maybe our relationships, uh, maybe romantic love, maybe education, maybe it's the pursuit of, of things that make us feel better, maybe we self medicate. We look for meaning and purpose in all sorts of ways. But God has created us for relationship with Him. And meaning and purpose is not going to be found in self centered or soft living or accumulating great wealth or gaining a trophy or a ring. Materialism always promises more than it can deliver in the long run. Joy and contentment and meaning and peace are inner realities that come to us independent of our external circumstances. Money cannot buy our way out of emptiness or into happiness. Our purpose and our meaning is to be found in following Jesus Christ and serving others. And when we give to him and we give with open hands, it helps to keep that in place in our thinking. Thirdly, remember that love of money can take us down the wrong path. Proverbs 16, 8 states, Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. With wealth comes great responsibility. And by any measure, we're all wealthy compared to the rest of the world. And with wealth comes power in our world and influence. And the temptation to use that power and influence wrongly can be very strong. And the Bible is clear again in this regard. 1 Timothy 6 says, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So we are to remember that money can pose a peril to our faith if we allow it to reorder our values. And our priorities. Fourthly, perspective. We are to adopt an eternal perspective. In Colossians 3, Paul writes, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your hearts on things above, not on earthly things. We are to have an eternal perspective. In the book, The Glorious Pursuit, Gary Thomas uh, tells a story about a man in New England whose life was radically changed by the death of a co-worker. These men had worked together side-by-side side for many years in a, in a Fortune 500 company that paid well, but they demanded a lot from their workers. He writes, We gave our lives to the company. They took care of us but expected us to organize our lives around our work. If we said no even once, we'd be taken off the track of promotion and kept in a vocational eddy for the rest of our careers. So we got up early, went to work early, and got home late. The colleague who died was only in his late 40s. His replacement was on the job early the next day. The man was devastated. He says nobody from work even went to the guy's funeral. Because they didn't know his family, they figured it didn't matter. He gave his entire life to the company, but didn't miss a step. The company didn't miss a step. Not one once he died. It was as as if he never existed. We pour ourselves into enterprises and business and vocation. Again, not bad things. But if that rises to the top of the priority chain, all that security and meaning pales in the face of death and ultimate realities. We are to think and adopt a perspective of eternity. And then finally, we are to experience the internal joy of giving. Jesus said this in Acts 20:35. it's more blessed to give than to receive. And again, Jesus said this in Matthew 10:8. freely you have received, freely give. George White knew this well. He was a man who lived in a rented room at the YMCA in Chicago. He had one set of clothes, shoes that were wrapped up with rubber bands to keep the soles from flopping. And he had a threadbare black coat. He spent most of his mornings napping in an old chair in the back of the police district office. Two officers took an interest in him. They would slip him a few bucks now and then, and also the owner of a grill across the street named Billy the Greek gave him a hot breakfast every morning, no charge. When Christmas came around, the two policemen and their families decided to have him as a guest for dinner, and they gave him presents after dinner, which he unwrapped carefully, and then he thanked them. As they drove him back to the Y, George asked, are these presents really mine to keep? And they said, yes, they are. He said, well, then we we need to make a stop. We need to stop at the grill before I go home. And he began to rewrap the presents. When they walked into the grill, Billy the Greek was there, and and George said, you've been good to me, Billy. Now I can be good to you. Merry Christmas. And he gave away all the presents on the spot. Generosity is natural when a grateful attitude, a joyful attitude, attitude is present. Generosity with our, our finances and material possessions is, is an outflow of a grateful and joyful heart that trusts in the Lord. Second Corinthians 9-7 says, Each one should give what they have decided in their heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So how do we honor God with our resources? How do we how, are we, how can we be found faithful with them? We are to honor Him first, to acknowledge that all is His in the first place. Anyway, we are to remember what brings real meaning: life, possessions, over promise and under deliver. But God is always faithful. We are to remember that the dangers that the love of money can bring. Where does money sit on our priority list? We are to have a, an eternal perspective to remember what counts for eternity and what does not. And to remember what, what gives joy. Just as God has given to us, we are to give in return and likewise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful that you are God who is a giving God. That you've given us your son, Jesus Christ. You've given us the world in which we live. You've given us life and health and family and friends and opportunities far more than, than we deserve. We thank you for those. We know that ultimately all that we have and all that we are is is the gift from you and, and we are simply to use those things well to invest them for you. And so, Lord, as we conclude this series, help us, Father, to be mindful that we would be found faithful when you return in the use of our time, our talents, our testimony, and our treasure. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.